0: Great to be here with you all this morning as we begin a new women's Bible study. I am super excited to study the books of First, Second, and Third John together with you all this year. Um, I personally enjoy reading. I love reading. uh, Reading for work, reading for pleasure, just enjoy reading. And a lot of times uh, we get influenced by what authors would. Would write through their words, whether it be uh, fiction or nonfiction. I remember first uh, really falling in love with the writings of John Steinbeck, uh, reading of mice and men when I was young and just weeping as I was thinking about the characters and their struggles and what they were going through and then reading Grapes of Wrath and then later learning about Steinbeck himself, that uh, he was from central northern California. California, born in Salinas, raised and lived during the Great Depression, and saw these migrant workers. He really lived out the stories that he wrote about, and he was familiar with these things. My probably all-time favorite author is C.S. Lewis. I love reading his writings, whether they're fantasy like the Chronicles of Narnia or just this really uh, great theology, books like Mere Christianity. And then later learning about Lewis himself, that he's a literary scholar, uh, that he was originally an atheist. And then he became a theist who believed in God and then ultimately a Christian. So when he writes books like Mere Christianity and explains the thoughts that I had in words that I could never articulate, it makes so much sense because of his own spiritual journey and the brilliance that God gifted him with. And I'm currently reading uh, Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Uh, it's an it's a super fun novel about uh, wealthy Russians in the 1800s and even though it was written about people on a different continent in a different place so long ago I feel like I know these characters and I feel like I've even experienced or my friends have experienced some of the struggles that they're going through and reading about Tolstoy and how he himself identified with one of the characters in that book and his own Christian faith just makes it come even more alive to me. Uh, It's fun to be able to read and understand more about what we're reading when we understand a little bit more of the author and why he wrote the things that he wrote. When we study the Bible. When we study God's word, it's even more important that we think about who the author is of the text that we're studying, who the human author is that God used, uh, whom the texts were written to, when they were written, and why they were written. And even though it can be tempting to just push through introductory material, it ends up helping us to really get our minds into the shoes of the original author audience to whom these texts were written and then as we understand and we begin to think through what they must have thought and felt when they heard these books these letters written or read for the first time uh, it helps us to understand how to take those universal truths and apply them to our life. So before we begin our journey through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John this year, we're going to learn a little bit about the author. The author of the books, John himself. And just to start out, John the Apostle, the author of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, is not to be confused with John the Baptist, another key John in the New Testament. Uh, John the Baptist had a unique role as the forerunner, so to speak, Of the Messiah, the one who went before Christ and prepared the hearts and minds of God's people for this coming Messiah. Uh, But John the Apostle, who wrote the letters that we're studying, is not the same person as John the Baptist, although he was a disciple of john the baptist and we actually see that in john 1 35 through 40. john 1 35 through 40 and we'll begin to see as we look at this text the unique way that john the apostle refers to himself in his writings, and that is without naming himself. Uh, John 1, through 40, talking about John the Baptist, says John was standing with two of his disciples, that's John the Baptist, and he looked at Jesus and walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God, So John the Baptist saw Jesus walking by and looked at him and said, The Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this. So there were two disciples of John the Baptist there who heard John the Baptist saying this about Jesus, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. So they hung out with Jesus that day. Then verse 40 says, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So there are two disciples there. They were disciples of John the Baptist, and then they followed Jesus after John the Baptist's declaration, and they stayed with him for the day. We know that one was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and the other was unnamed, and that person was John, John the Apostle, the author of the text. Uh, We know that John doesn't reveal his name again in his writings, and we also know that John not only hung out with Andrew, but he was very good friends with Andrew. In fact, uh, there are two pairs of brothers in the New Testament, uh, two pairs of brothers that were disciples. Uh, Peter and Andrew were brothers, and John and James were brothers. And not only were these two pairs of brothers close as brothers, but the four of them were close because they had a fishing business together. Uh, They were partners in a fishing business this. And we see that as we see the original call upon these four men, upon John the Apostle and his brother James and his friends and partners, Peter and Andrew. Uh, We can see that, for example, in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, as this official call by Christ goes out to these men. Uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 1 says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, that's Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, another name for the Sea of Galilee, which is really a very large lake. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. So there were two boats there. One belonged to Peter and Andrew and the other to John the Apostle and James. And again, they were a team. Uh, Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and Simon Peter is the same person, it's Peter, uh, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So Jesus, because of the crowd, asked to use Simon Peter's Peter's boat, Peter and Andrew's boat, went out into the lake and taught the people. And then in verse 4 of Luke 5, it says, and when he had finished speaking, he He said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon's a fisherman. He knows that Jesus is the rabbi or the teacher. And he says in verse five, master, we toiled all night and took nothing. I mean, you're not going to catch fish right now. But he said, at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. So their nets were breaking from all the fish that Jesus had jump into these nets, right? And they realized that something big was among them. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat. That's to John the apostle and his brother James to come and help them. And they came and filled Both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were also James and John, that's John the apostle, sons of Zebedee who were partners with Simon. So we see these four brothers were partners together in this fishing business. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So they made this choice to follow Jesus early on in his ministry. And we see the exact same thing recorded more briefly in Mark 1, 16 through 20. It's called a parallel account. The same thing again recorded, but more briefly. It says in Mark 1:16, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen and Jesus, Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, that's John the apostle, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So, uh, Andrew and John the Apostle, they uh, followed Jesus when John the Baptist pointed them to Christ. They knew who Jesus was, and then they were officially or formally called by Christ. Andrew and Peter, James and John, they received this call from Christ to follow him, and they did. They immediately followed him, and they left everything to become his disciples. And the first takeaway for us from this, the first point, in a sense, to write down is we need to do the same thing. And that is immediately respond to Christ's call. Uh, When Jesus calls us, uh, when he calls us, we need to respond and respond immediately. And you might think, well, that's kind of silly because Jesus isn't calling me he's not coming out to my house and telling me to you know leave everything and follow him or he's not coming to my workplace where i'm fishing or doing whatever saying you know leave me and follow me but he is actually calling you he's calling you through his word right His word tells you to become his disciple, to put your trust in him, to turn from your sins and to follow him and follow him immediately without delay. Uh, Obedience to Jesus, responding to the call of Christ on our lives is normative for the Christian, whether that's the call to be saved or the call to be obedient as a Christian if he's calling us to stop doing something through his word, if he's calling us to start doing something through the pages of scripture, we need to respond to that and respond to it immediately. Uh, We never see uh, a lack of response or an unwillingness to respond to the call of Christ as being normative for the Christian in the New Testament. In fact, uh, Jesus talked about this principle in Luke 6, 46 through 49. Uh, If you want to turn there, Luke 6, 46 through 49. If not, just jot down the reference. We'll be looking at many passages. Uh, Jesus saying to his disciples, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Uh, Jesus saying, that would make no sense for me to be your Lord, your boss, your king. And yet you don't do what I ask. He says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well-built. How was it well-built? It was well-built because they came to Christ, they heard his words, and they did them. They obeyed, they did what he said. But in contrast, the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Uh, The second group, they heard the words, but they didn't put them into practice. They didn't respond to the call of Christ, and the fall was great. So we know that uh, John... John the Apostle and his brother James from the text had a father named Zebedee. Uh, They were fishermen. They actually had a very successful fishing business because the text revealed that there were hired servants there. Uh, Peter and Andrew were their partners, and John and James uh, had a mother, obviously, and uh, the New Testament might lead us, the Gospels might lead us to believe that their mother's name was Salome. Uh, It's not something that we can get into right now, but something that you can study later if you're interested in it. And we see that John, John the Apostle, traveled with Jesus early from the beginning of his ministry. And then we know that Jesus went on to formally call 12 disciples, uh, 12 people to follow after him. We know that John was clearly following him before this official appointing, but we see official appointing in Mark chapter 3 verses 13 through 19. Mark chapter 3 verses 13 through 19, it says that Jesus went on a mountain and called to him those whom he desired and they came to him. And he appointed 12, 12 people whom he named apostles so that he might they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have the authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. So we know who that is. James, the son of Zebedee and John, the brother of James. So those are the two brothers, John, the apostle, and his brother, James. And then it says... To whom he gave the name, so Jesus gave them this name, Boanerges, that is, Sons of Thunder. So Jesus named John the Apostle and his brother James Boanerges, the Sons of Thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, you might be wondering, what's that Boanerges thing that's given to John the Apostle and his brother James? The sons of thunder, why were they called that? And scholars will say it's because they had very bold personalities. They were very black and white kind of guys, and we're going to see that as we explore the writings of the Apostle John. Very black and white, light and dark, life and death. He was just an all-in type of guy he was the type of guy who would hear the command of christ and say all right let's go let's do this And we see that even in the Gospels. If you look, for example, at Luke chapter 9, verses 49 and 50. Luke chapter 9, verses 49 and 50, John talking to Jesus. Uh, John said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. So John saying, hey, we saw this guy trying to do work in your name. And we said, no way, you're not part of team Jesus, right? But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. And then a couple of verses later, we see John again. We see that uh, Jesus sent messengers, the text says, ahead of him who went to the Samaritans to make preparations for him and his arrival there. Uh, Luke chapter 9, verses 53 to 55. Luke chapter 9, 53 to 55 says, but the people, the Samaritans, did not receive him. They didn't receive Jesus because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, Bo and Aragas, sons of thunder, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I mean, let's just say, you know what, fire, come down and burn these guys up because they didn't receive you, Jesus. It says, but he, Jesus, turned. And rebuked them. He said, uh, no, let's not do that. Appreciate the zeal, right? But no, he rebuked them. No, you do not call fire down to consume those. So John was clearly in Jesus's inner circle of friends. I mean, he was very close to Jesus. Uh, we see there were times that Jesus personally selected John uh, for certain events. Uh, for example, in Mark chapter five, verse 37, when uh, Jesus healed a ruler of the synagogue, a Jewish ruler's daughter, uh, Jairus, his daughter, it says, in Mark 537 he allowed no one to follow him except, Peter and James and John, the brother of James. So just Peter, James, and John the apostle were allowed to go in with Jesus when he healed this synagogue ruler's daughter. And then at the transfiguration, remember when God pulled back the curtain, so to speak, and Jesus's glory was on display. Uh, there were select people, a few select people that Jesus allowed to accompany him. It says in Matthew 17:1 and two, after six days jesus took with him peter and james and john his brother john the apostle and led them up a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light so these are things that john the apostle was able to experience with jesus because they were such good friends Uh, Again, he was in his inner circle of friends. And being really good friends with somebody might lead you to make some bold requests, right? There's that level of comfort, that level of familiarity. Uh, We see a bold request in Mark 10, 35 through 45. Mark 10, 35 through 45, if you want to turn there and look at that. If not, jot down the reference and read it later. Mark 10, 35 through 45 says, James and John, so James and John the apostle, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, came up to Jesus and said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Wow, right? I mean, you know, Jesus, I want you to do for me whatever I ask of you. I hope I'm not doing that in prayer, but. And he said to them, Well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. And Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. "'Are you able to drink the cup that I drink "'or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized?' And they said to him, "'We are able. "'We can do this.' And Jesus said to them, "'Okay, the cup that I drink you will drink, "'and with the baptism with which I am baptized "'you will be baptized. "'But to sit at my right hand or my left "'is not mine to grant, "'but it is for those for whom it has been prepared.' And when the 10 heard it, the other 10 disciples, they began to be indignant at James and John. They were livid. Why? Because they wanted those seats, right? It's like, wait, you guys, that's what I wanted to be doing. And so Jesus, it says in verse 42, called to them and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the son of man, Jesus saying, even me, the son of man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many so it's interesting because when we saw that John and James said to Jesus, hey, you know, these guys didn't receive you. Let's call down fire and just have them burned up. Jesus said no and rebuked them. And now John and James are coming to Jesus and saying, hey, can we sit at the right and the left? And Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't tell them that what they wanted was wrong. Instead, he tells them how to get there that the way they were going about it might have been wrong because it's important to remember that it's not wrong to want to be great in God's kingdom. They knew that Jesus had a coming kingdom. Uh, They said, you know, when we're with you in glory, they knew that a time was coming, you know, a time in the next life, and they wanted to be there with Jesus by his side. They just didn't know how to make it happen. And, you know, we should want to be great, in a sense, in God's kingdom too. And we can do that. The same way that Jesus told them to do it, by boldly investing into the future. So that's the second point here. Like them, the sons of thunder, the Boa and with their boldness, boldly invest into the future. Think about the future, things that are long time ahead of us. Think about the future, the coming kingdom with Christ where he will rule and reign. And think about what we'll be doing there. And we see that Jesus taught all of his disciples that principle. Uh, Matthew chapter 6 verses 19 through 21. A familiar passage. Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is there will your heart be also. So Jesus taught that the true disciple of Christ is to be forward thinking, is to be thinking about her future and to even be boldly investing into her future. And we do that, Jesus said, by being a servant. That's one of the ways that we can store up for the life to come is not by seeking to be served, but by seeking to serve others. And we know that Jesus said he himself did that. And we see that so beautifully illustrated in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, where we see Paul teaching that this is the attitude that all Christians should have, where we not seek to be served, but to serve. Jesus himself, who was very God and took on human flesh, God became a human. And then that human went down to the level of a servant or a slave. And then that servant or slave went all the way down to execution on a Roman execution rack known as a cross that was only for the lowest in society. And that's what this is pointing to. We go up in the kingdom by going down and becoming the servant of all. And in a sense that is the ultimate act of faith. Because we're saying we're not going to store up for this life. But we're going to store up for the life to come. What greater act of faith is there than that? And so John became a servant. He did what Jesus asked. In fact, we see in Luke 22:7 7 through 8, Peter and John both preparing uh, for the Passover, the last supper, the final Passover that Jesus would have with his disciples. Luke 22, 7 and 8 says, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed so jesus sent peter and john saying go and prepare the passover for us that we may eat it and they did they prepared the passover for him and the other disciples and then we know it was at that night uh there that last passover the the last supper you know the da vinci painting we can all see it in our minds with jesus there in the center and the disciples around him Uh, On that night in John 13, 21 through 25, it says that Jesus was troubled in his spirit and he's there with his friends. Jesus was troubled in his spirit and said, John 13, 21, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. Uh, We're going to see that John referred to himself in his gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So John was there, the disciple whom Jesus loved, reclining at his table, and Peter motioned to him, his friend John, to ask of Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, John, the one whom Jesus loved, leaning back against Jesus said, Lord, who is it? Now, this term, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John uses it four times of his himself in the gospel of John. Uh, and you might think, what an odd term, the disciple whom Jesus loved. I know thinking through it this summer as I was working on first, second, and third John, I thought that just seems a little bit weird. I mean, maybe even a little bit arrogant, you know, to write about yourself. I'm the one who Jesus loves, you know, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And thinking through it this summer and reading what scholars had to say about it, scholars said that it was a term of humility. And I thought, how could that be a term of humility? It almost sounds arrogant, like he's superior to everybody else. And then it clicked. And I read more of what scholars and theologians have said. And the point is, is that if we're in Christ, we're all disciples that Jesus loves. It wasn't just exclusive to John the Apostle, that's true of all followers of Christ. Because we're in Christ, Jesus loves us, and we are disciples that Jesus loves. And this isn't a statement of pride at all. In fact, it's a statement of full dependence upon and identification with Christ, which is something that we should all remember to do. So the third point for us, the third takeaway here, is humbly acknowledge how much Jesus loves you. We saw that John boldly did that the disciple whom Jesus loved. I am a follower of Christ, a disciple, and Jesus loves me. And that's where I get my identity. That's who I am. We know Jesus loved us and he loved us to death, right? We see that truth, for example, in Ephesians 5, 2. Ephesians 5, 2, where it says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. I mean, we could put our own name there. Walk in love as Christ loved me and gave himself up for me. As Christ loved you and gave himself up for you. It's truth for all of it. And you know what? It's not even something that's not specific. The Bible teaches us, for example, that those who are disciples of Christ were actually marked out from before the foundation of the world. How amazing is that, that Jesus chose to love us and make us his disciples? And if you're listening right now thinking, you know, I haven't yet really surrendered my life to Christ. I haven't yet come to faith in Christ through repentance and faith. How do I know? How would I know if he's chosen me or marked me out? Well, if you're listening to this or other teachings about Christ and you feel the Holy Spirit of God tugging at your heart, pulling you to want to get your life right with Christ, that's his love. That's the love of God that's pulling you in. And if you respond to that love by turning from your sins and placing your trust in Christ, then you'll know that you were chosen, that you were marked out from before the foundation of the world to also be a beloved disciple, a disciple, a follower of Christ that Jesus loves. You know, we can forget this even though it's so basic, such a basic truth to the Christian faith. We can forget that Jesus loves us. If we were to go home, let's say this afternoon and be alone by ourselves at home. And if suddenly Jesus were to appear there to us and look right into our eyes and say to us, I love you. And I've forgiven you for every sin you've ever committed. And I'm also forgiving you for every sin that you will commit because you're a follower of mine. You're a disciple of mine how would that make you feel if Jesus just looked right at you and said I love you and I forgive you I mean I feel like it would help me to feel like the weight of the world was off my shoulders right like all the petty things that I'm worried about or consumed with or torn by they just wouldn't really matter anymore and you know that truth is true If we're Christians, he has said these things to us, right? He has said and revealed that he loves us and that he's forgiven us. He's released us from the debt that our sins have earned. The sins that we've committed in the past and the sins that we will forget. And we can't forget that. Because as we go out and live our lives, this world will pound us down. It'll pound us down and discourage us. And you know, we can even pound ourselves down and discourage ourselves. And it's important that we remember as Christians, as genuine followers of Christ like John, that our identification with Christ is the most important thing in the world. Even more important than our own name. And we need to remember that because we're going to fall. And when we fall, we gotta get back up and we gotta remember that Jesus loves us and that we are in him. And we see times that John fell Uh, For example, in the garden of Gethsemane in Mark chapter 14 verses 33 through 35 uh, reveals when Jesus was going to the garden before the cross, he had his darkest hour when he was calling out to the Father. It says in Mark 14, uh, 32, he took and said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John. John the apostle was there with him and began to be greatly distressed and troubled and said, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And we know that John the apostle along with James and Peter, they they fell asleep. They fell asleep and then uh, the passage goes on in Matthew 26, 56, for example, to let us know that after Jesus was arrested, all, all of the disciples fled. And Jesus was left there alone. But you know, there were two disciples that came back and followed Jesus. Uh, one we know was Peter, and the other was John. Uh, we see that in John 18, verses 15 and 16, because it was actually John who got Peter into the high priest's courtyard. Uh, it says in John eighteen fifteen, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. The other disciple there is John. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, John, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So John was there with Peter, and John was the one who helped Peter to get into the high priest's courtyard where Peter would go on to deny Jesus. Jesus. But John followed him to the end. Uh, We know even at the cross, John was there. He was there with Jesus. We see that in John 19, 25 through 27. It says, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. So John, John the apostle, he took Mary into his own home and took care of her because Jesus was no longer there to take care of her. We know that Jesus died. His body was taken off the cross. He was placed in a tomb. Uh, the tombs in Israel for rich people, which he was placed in, were like a cave and a rock with a stone that was rolled in the front. And some of Jesus's followers, his women followers, wanted to anoint his body with oils and spices as was customary. They couldn't do it immediately because it was the Sabbath. But John chapter 20, verse one through four, says on the first day of the week, so on Sunday, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early and saw that the stone had been taken away. So she ran and she told Simon, Peter, and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. So Mary went and told John the apostle and Peter and said, they have taken our Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have left him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, that's John, and they were going toward the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter. So John got there faster. And then it says in John 28 and 9, then the other disciple, John himself, who had reached the tomb, first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So John looked in that tomb and he got it. He remembered what John the Baptist said. When John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That Jesus had been that very Lamb that was crucified on his behalf. Who died and needed to rise again from the grave conquering sin and death and he got it he got it and he understood that's exactly what john the baptist meant and then he went back to fishing with peter and the other disciples because that's what they did especially with jesus gone and they were fishing and fishing and guess what they couldn't catch any fish They had no big catch. John chapter 21 verses 4 through 7 says, although they'd been fishing and they didn't catch any fish, day was breaking. And as day was breaking in John 21, 4, Jesus stood on the shore. And yet the disciples, they didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Remember when that happened before in Luke 5 and in Mark? Then the disciple who Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. He realized, wait, this is Jesus. And they jumped in the water to get to Jesus. This had all happened before. And Jesus went on to reveal to Peter that he was going to die a difficult death and Peter was there with John the Apostle, his friend, and Peter, like many of us would, in John 21, 20 and 22, uh, Peter said to Jesus, it says, Peter turned and saw the disciple who Jesus loved following them, so he saw his friend John there, the one who had leaned back against him during the supper, and he said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? Again, revealing this is John the Apostle. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? I mean, I'm going to die a difficult death. What about him? And Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? Follow me, right? Jesus had a different plan for John than he did for Peter. And we all have to be good with the different plans that Jesus has for us as his disciples. What is that to you? Jesus said, follow me. We know that Jesus was with them for another 40 days or for 40 days total. And then he rose up. He ascended to heaven and he told them to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit would come and empower them to do the work that Christ had called them to do. The same Holy Spirit that we receive when we trust in Christ and turn from our sins. We know the Holy Spirit came and after that, we see in Acts 3, Peter and John, Peter and John the apostle, these two friends walking to the temple, walking to the temple and teaching and preaching Christ, letting other people know about the love of Christ. And one day they saw a crippled man. And they healed that crippled man in the name of Jesus. And this man had been crippled from birth. And everybody saw that they had healed him in the name of Christ. And they were overwhelmingly glad and rejoicing and joyful. And the religious leaders heard about it. And they wanted to quash this excitement. So they locked Peter and John the Apostle up. It says in Acts 4.13 when they... uh, pulled them out uh, they saw the boldness of peter and john acts 4:13 or yeah acts 4:13 it says they saw the boldness of peter and john and they perceived that they were uneducated common men they weren't these brilliant religious scholars they were fishermen they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with jesus these were men who had been with Jesus and all that, again, although they weren't these brilliant religious scholars, they had been with Jesus. Uh, Acts 4, 18 and 20, uh, as a punishment, so to speak, it says, they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John, John the apostle, answered saying, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God. You must judge. They were the religious leaders, right? For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We're going to keep telling people about Jesus. And later in the next chapter, all of the disciples, including John, were arrested for preaching and teaching in the temple. They were jailed again, and they got out. And what did they do? They went back to the temple and began preaching and teaching. And then in Acts 5, 28 and 29, after they'd been pulled back in by the religious leaders, the religious leaders said, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And so as punishment for that, In Acts 5, 40 and 42, as punishment, it says when they called them in, John the apostle and the other apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease. They didn't stop teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. The Christ is Jesus. They were passionate. They were unstoppable, no matter how difficult it was. They were beaten for that and it didn't stop them. It didn't deter them. So often we focus on our difficulties and the problems that are going on rather than the great successes that are taking place. They focused on ministry for Christ and the fact that Christ was being preached and proclaimed rather than the difficulties. And we need to do the same thing despite our difficulties. We got to keep telling people about the love of Jesus, the love of God expressed through the cross for us and for others. We need to tell people about the truth of Jesus and the love that he has for everyone. And that's the fourth and final takeaway here is passionately contend for truth and love as we see the apostle John going on to do, spending his life literally contending for truth and for love. And remember, these weren't brilliant academic scholars. Remember the text said they were regular, uneducated men. They were common men. And that was astonishing. And even though they were common men, they had something that the religious leaders didn't have. And what that was, was they had spent time with Jesus. And that's what we got to do. If we're going to be contending for truth and love, it's rooted in our time with Christ. Spending time with Jesus Spending time with Him in His Word. Uh, spending time with Him through prayer. Spending time with Him as we spend time with one another. Uh, we know we've been saved and we've been empowered by God's Holy Spirit. And God uses our time with Him to help us to passionately contend for truth and love. And you know, because this is true, you know what the enemy's going to co- try to keep us from doing? Spending time in the Word. Spending time in prayer and spending time with one another because that emboldens us. It gives us the courage that we need to keep doing what Christ has called us to do. And so the enemy's gonna try to keep us from those very things. And the great news is, is that we have the opportunity to study first, second, and third John together, to be in his word, to pray together corporately, to pray for one another, to encourage one another to pray, and to get together as Christian women and encourage and spur one another on. And John went on to be known as a pillar in the church. In Galatians uh, chapter two, verse nine, Galatians 2 9 Paul talking about uh, the call on his life it says when James and Cephas and John the apostle John who seemed to be pillars they were just these pillars in the church perceived the grace that was given to me that's Paul they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised so John the apostle worked for many years with the church in Jerusalem with Jews who were becoming Christians while Paul went out to the Gentiles and you know there's a lot written in early church history about John Uh, this is not scripture so it's not you know for a fact but there is much written about John in early church history Uh, They say that after Mary died, remember, John was taking care care of Jesus' mother, Mary. Uh, After Mary died, John uh, wasn't married himself. So he was an unmarried man. His brother, James, had been executed by Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 12, and he was alone. He was alone and these pillars in Jerusalem, these godly men realized that they needed to go out and help with some of the churches that Paul had established. Paul was executed for his faith in Christ, and they needed to go out and see how those churches were doing. So uh, the tradition says that they drew lots. And when they drew lots, the area called Asia Minor fell to John the Apostle. And uh, according to the stories, he was devastated. He did not want to go to Asia Minor, to Galatia and Ephesus and all these cities in modern day Turkey because these cities were steeped in idolatry. Ephesus, in fact, where he would go, uh, had what was known there as the Temple of Artemis or the Temple of Diana, which was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. This amazing temple where people would come from all over the world to worship idols and gods that were no gods. And John was a strong, solid Jewish man and he despised idolatry, but he went there. And he uh, worked as an elder there. He was a pastor, a shepherd, a teacher there. And he worked with the community that Paul had originally established. Uh, The church tradition goes on to say that he got a job in a bathhouse at Ephesus. Uh, A bathhouse then was just a place that people would go to take baths. Because they didn't have bathrooms that looked like ours. So they would have to go to these bathhouses to take baths. And apparently John chopped wood and threw it into a fire at the bathhouse to keep the bath water warm for the people that went there. They say that he had a boss who was named Secundus. And Secundus paid him regularly and watched John and wondered why John didn't buy anything for himself. He even asked John if his wages weren't sufficient because he saw that John wasn't buying anything for himself. And John then revealed to uh, Secundus that his master had taught him not to store up treasure on earth. And Secundus thought, Master? Is this guy a runaway slave? So John went on to tell Secundus, No, my master is Jesus. He's the king of kings and the lord of lords. And Secundus ended up coming to faith in Christ. And there are all sorts of interesting stories from church history and church tradition about what went on, what took place, the conversations that took place in that bathhouse. Uh, There's one that's kind of well known about a man named Serentius. Serentius, uh, he was a false teacher. And John did not like false teachers. He was a false teacher and he came into the bathhouse and the, the story goes that John ran out immediately. And everyone asked him, why are you running out of the bathhouse? And he said, Serinthus is a false teacher. And I'm afraid the judgment of God is going to fall on him. So I'm afraid the whole bathhouse is going to crumble when he's in here. And he ran out, always making a statement. Remember the Boanerges, the son of thunder, very black and white. He went on to successfully disciple many uh, well-known men. Uh, one of them was Polycarp, who's one of the early church fathers. Polycarp discipled Irenaeus, and there's lots of writings that they put down about this, what's called, Johannine community. Uh, these communities of churches that were under the eldership, the leadership of John. Now remember, John was, at this point, the last apostle alive. All of the other apostles had died. He was the last one and he wanted to contend for truth and for love. He wanted to make sure that people got it. And so he wrote the gospel of John late. He wrote that from Ephesus in they say 80, uh, 85 to 90, uh, telling people that Jesus is the Christ and that salvation is found in no other name. And then after writing the gospel, these uh, false teachers, more false teachers kind of bubbled up within the community, within the churches there, and they began to say that Jesus was not God come in the flesh. And that faith in Christ was not necessary for the forgiveness of sins. And you can imagine how that would have made John feel. John was there with Jesus through his whole ministry. I mean, listening to these people suddenly saying, no, that's not true. What John says isn't true. And so John wrote 1 John. He wrote 1 John as a sermon, so to speak, to be circulated throughout these churches, to tell these confused people, what I've taught you is true. Don't listen to these false teachers. These false teachers have gone out with the wrong message. Faith in Christ is necessary. And Christ alone can save you from your sins. He wrote that letter, they say, in about 90 to 95 AD, so at the very end of the first century. And then he wrote uh, another letter, a small letter to a church there uh, warning this church as the elder, he calls himself the elder, warning them not to take in these false teachers. When these false teachers travel around trying to bring to you a different message, don't even let them into your homes or into your churches, don't give them an audience, say no to all false teaching. And then third John, a letter that was written to his friend, Gaius. Uh, He wrote to him saying, when I send or when there are genuine believers that are looking for a place to stay, take them in. Even if you don't know them, the love of genuine believers must be extended so much so that you take them into your own home and provide for them. And we'll be able to study those things. Uh, Fox's book of martyrs, which is a famous book of church history and those who have suffered in church history. It says that from Ephesus, John, the apostle in his late life was taken to Rome. And it says that in Rome, he was cast into a cauldron of boiling oil. But he escaped by miracle, they say, without injury. So this older man thrown into a cauldron of boiling oil. And after that, he was banished to the island of Patmos, an island off the coast where political prisoners would go. The emperor Domitian didn't like what he was preaching and teaching and banished him there. And it was while he was on the island of Patmos as an old man that Jesus appeared to him. And Jesus showed him what would happen right before and right after he returns. And John recorded that in the revelation. John wrote the revelation. It says in Revelation 1.9, I, John your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was uh, exiled there because of his faith in Christ. Uh, After Domitian, Nerva became the emperor and he brought John back to Ephesus from Patmos. And legend says that John died a natural death as an old man in Ephesus. And they even have a tomb there that's the traditional burial site of the apostle John. So John wrote actually about a third of the New Testament he wrote the Gospel of John, which is a biography. He wrote 1 John, which was like a sermon, a letter to be circulated through these churches. He wrote two uh, personal letters, 2nd and 3rd John, and then he wrote the apocalyptic literature known as the Revelation. And he's now known by the church in church history as the Apostle of Love because he wrote so much. About God and Christ's love for us, which drives us and inspires us to love God and to love one another. We saw there's lots of names given to John, right? The son of Zebedee, the brother of James, the bow on the sons of thunder, the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, the elder, the apostle of love, John the apostle, or the beloved disciple. He was a man that was focused on the truth and love of Jesus Christ, and we will see that through his writings. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this opportunity to join together as fellow Christians, as uh, sisters in Christ and to get excited about exploring these three incredible ancient texts together, the writings, the letters, so to speak, of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Lord, I pray that you would help us all to be like John and to immediately respond to your call on our life whether it's the call to trust you and follow you in repentance and faith, or whether it's a call just to stop sinning and start doing what's right. What are you calling us to do today, God? Help us not to resist your word, but to humbly yield the way that John did, Lord. God, I pray that we would be wise, that we wouldn't live for this life and the pleasures of this life, but we, like John, would store up for the life to come, that we would be more kingdom thinking than earthly thinking, Lord, and I pray that we would never forget that despite our failures, despite our weaknesses, that Jesus loves us. That he's chosen to place his love upon us and forgive us of all of our sins. And I pray, God, that that would drive us, that that would compel us to, like John, to be passionate and passionately contend for the truth of God, for the truth of Christ and the love, the love that he has not only for us, but that he calls us to have for him and for others. God, we so look forward to exploring these texts together. We thank you for this church that makes it possible. And we thank you ultimately for the one who truly makes it possible, your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You guys are dismissed to your groups.